Friends, it's good to be together with you. Happy Halloween. If we, I, I tried to wear black to look spooky. I don't know if that's spooky or not. Uh, my name is Adam. If we haven't met, and it's my joy to be one of the pastors here, we're going to have hopefully a little bit of fun with a pretty crucial topic today, relational vampires. Who is that person when it, <laughs> give it up for the relational vampires. Yeah. Who is that person when their name comes up, when they walk into the room, when you understand that you're going to be in, in the same space as them, that internally you just go, oh, oh, no names, no names. Got some participate. Oh, joy suckers. I thought like, oh, I thought poor Mrs. Sucker. She's okay. I got you. Yes. Uh, <laughs> this could be a classmate, a cousin, a colleague. This could be a cul-de-sac neighbor, a kid, you know. My guess is uh, that we all know these folks. And so on Halloween, for fun, uh, we're going to think of these individuals as relational vampires, people that suck the life out of you. Perhaps you have experienced some of the attributes of these people that make you go, ugh. So here are some traits of the relational vampire. Bam. You have the fangs of gossip. You ever around somebody and they're, they're talking stuff about somebody else and you think, well, I wonder what they say about me when I'm not around. Relational vampire. Or we've got the nails with no emotional intelligence and the fingers that seem to fly on social media posts, always posting something uh, obtuse and, 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 and with no emotional intelligence. Maybe you've experienced a mean streak with somebody. Like why are they taking their problems out on me? wonder if that's happened to you. Relational vampires, they have eyes that only see the negative and they're happy to point that out all the time, constantly. Some people are only happy when they're miserable and they try and make everyone else the same way. Uh, maybe you've ex experienced the flaky feet of a relational vampire. They're flaky. They're, they never commit. You don't know whether they're in or out on anything. They're, they're not dependable in the least. And the relational vampire, perhaps the spookiest piece of wardrobe, is the cape of passive aggressiveness. <laughs> right? The, 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 the little things people do uh, that are cryptic and kind of let you know this undercurrent of dysfunction and unhealth. How do we go through life with these people? What I hope we'll discover as we study God's word together is that love is unconditional, but relationships are mutual. Some of the sayings of Jesus are hard to interpret. Take, takes, takes a lot of knowledge, a lot of study, a lot of uh, prayer, a lot of searching. Other sayings of Jesus, like today's, are pretty easy to understand. Uh, it's actually doing them that's, that's really, really hard. So in this section of the book of Matthew, the author is detailing Jesus preparing his disciples for his eventual departure, for his crucifixion. And so we'll pick up in Matthew 18, where Jesus gives a model for reconciliation and conflict resolution. This is Matthew 18, 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Now the Greek word here translated brother or sister is adelphos, and that indicates a neighbor especially understood as an associate with which one will interact morally and socially. This isn't just an acquaintance. This is someone you know. 
And so Jesus is saying, if someone in the same community of faith as you, that's what is meant here specifically, if someone in the same community of faith as you sins against you, go to them directly. Now, the context in which Jesus is speaking is for this close-knit kind of faith context, but I think we can all find application beyond that, but that's what Jesus was speaking to. Would you say in general that people are good at confronting problems or not? No, that's right. Most of us are like Rex from Toy Story. I don't like confrontations. You remember that part? Most of us would, would do almost anything to avoid a direct, difficult conversation. Jesus' approach of private but direct communication about sinful behavior, this is counterintuitive to what most of us would prefer. Now, there's lots of good resources out there on how to do this. Two that I would recommend. Uh, one is a book called Crucial Conversations, uh, Tools for Talking When the Stakes Are High. And I'd also invite you to look at uh, um, the website and the, the excellent resources from Susan Scott, particularly her book, Fierce Leadership. These are tactics on, on how to have uh, these direct conversations. Friends, how much conflict happens because someone does something but we don't have the guts to address it. I, I think it's a very difficult position to be in and it's one that we really can't sustain to be both angry and silent. A lot of times we wanna be both. We can't be angry and silent and then blame somebody else for something we've never told them. So one way to love someone who sucks the life out of you is don't treat a vampire like a psychic. Don't treat a vampire like a psychic. Other people can't read our minds. It's not fair to have a grievance go unexpressed or an expectation that you have uh, go, go unsaid that the other person isn't aware of and then blame them for it. So if we're not willing to have a difficult conversation, then we need to look inward as to why that is before we go blaming outward. And so if we think, well, why, why don't I want to bring this up? Well, if the issue is too petty to be addressed directly, well, then I think we have our answer and we should just kind of let it, let it, let it go. My wife is laughing because she'll do this to me sometimes. Just let it fly away. That's, that's, my, that's my favorite thing that happens. Uh, I got to just let it, let it fly away sometimes. Uh, now, I'm all, now I'm all flustered. I got to find my place here. Uh, now, I want to be real clear because um, the, the, there's a threshold for which I think this is appropriate to talk to you about as your pastor um, I'm talking about interpersonal things, things like we're on the diagram I spent way too much time uh, putting together on Canva. Uh, <laughs> these are all interpersonal things. I'm not trying to, I think there's a threshold beyond this for legal things. So if, if you're experiencing something like, a, like abuse, I'm not suggesting you need to go have a conversation and talk it over. You need to talk to your pastors and we'll help put you in touch with some resources. See what I mean? There's, there's a threshold for which I, I want to really encourage us to act this out. But beyond interpersonal things, if we're talking about abuse and other legal things, I, I think there's another process for that. I just wanted to be real clear about that as we go along. But for a lot of the things that suck the life out of us, we tend to treat vampires like psychics where we don't have the guts to address it directly. And that's what Jesus says we should do first. 
So if that is done graciously and it's received graciously, then you have succeeded. Well, what if that doesn't go so well? Lucky for us, Jesus continues. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So again, what's indicated here is, is the context of a close-knit community. You know, are there other people that, that kind of may know the circumstances or know those involved that you can bring in? Now, the word church is going to be used in our next verse. So again, this, we're talking about a close-knit community. So after trying to settle it one-on-one directly, are there other clear-headed, neutral voices that can bring a helpful perspective? The ancient rabbis had a saying, judge not alone, for none may judge alone, save one. And when Jesus is talking uh, in Matthew 18, that last part of verse 16 that we just read, he's actually quoting Deuteronomy 19.15. One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be decided by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So when Jesus says, bring bring some other folks along, this is an effort to spare the person accused or committing sin. It's an effort to share them from shame, excuse me, to spare them from shame. And that was a very important value in the first century, which in Jesus' day. And so another way to love someone who sucks the life out of you is don't face a vampire alone. Scottish professor William Barclay said this, People often hate those whom they have injured most of all, and it may well be that nothing we can say will win them back. But to talk matters over with some wise and kindly and gracious people present is to create a new atmosphere in which there is at least a chance that we should see ourselves as others see us. So once we've issued, uh, excuse me, once we've addressed the issue directly, not before, again, this is step two, step one is addressing it directly. But if it still persists, who else in the same circle could help move toward a resolution? In the case of something at school, that could be a counselor. In our families, it could be a therapist. If it's at work, it might be a manager or or someone in charge of another department that's unrelated. If the issue was was within our church family, it could be with one of our pastors or another leader at our church. You bring people in because there can be wisdom in consensus. But what if that doesn't work? Well, then Jesus turns up the volume. Verse 17, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. Now, this is a fascinating verse to me. The Greek term we translate into church is ekklesia, that means assembly or gathering. And, and it's interesting because we typically don't cite the birth of the church until the book of Acts and after Jesus' ascension. So what does Jesus mean by church? Well, it, it certainly doesn't not mean the church, but we need to be careful of retroactively applying all that we think of as church in, into what Jesus is saying in the first century. When Jesus says church in verse 17, the sense is going to be similar to Adelphos. When he says church, the sense in Greek is, is a local religious gathering of those aligned, aligned with and trusting in the God of Israel. So that would certainly apply to us. That would have been true for Jesus and his disciples as well. 
And so this has got to be a pretty serious issue to take it to the congregation, right? We, we don't have airing of grievances Sunday. Like that's, like, maybe we could do that the Sunday after Christmas, really just get it all out there. Uh, you know, the scriptures describe sometimes, even in the first century, when Christian communities were at odds with each other. A lot of times we think, oh, well, the New Testament, if we could just get back to the days of the early church, we would be in great shape. No, a lot of the New Testament was written because there were so many problems. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we read about disputes among believers being settled in court through lawsuits instead of through one another. And so if at all possible, what Jesus is giving us is a multi-tiered system, multiple steps to try and settle sins that have been committed individually and directly then a conversation with two or three others. And finally, with, with the backing of the local gathering of believers. But then to cap it all off, if all else fails, if you gotta go nuclear, this is what Jesus says. And even if they refuse to listen to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. What are we to take this to mean? For centuries, pagans and tax collectors would have been seen as unclean. Tax collectors were among some of the most hated people on the planet to the, to the people of Israel, to the Jews. And they weren't to be associated with. So does this mean after, I don't know, three strikes, a person's out? That a person who has wronged us, we don't have to do uh, anything with them or deal with them anymore? Well, I'm not sure that's true. As much as a part of me would love to say that, I don't think that's what Jesus means. Because just five verses later, Jesus is asked, well, how many times should we forgive someone? And he says, 70 times seven, basically infinity. I think to understand what Jesus meant by treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector, we should look at how Jesus treated pagans and tax collectors, right? He was criticized harshly by his religious rivals for the people he kept company with. They said, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. These same Pharisees mocked Jesus in front of his disciples when they asked him, why does your teacher eat with such scum? Later on in Matthew 21, three chapters later, Jesus tells his critics, I tell you the truth, corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes will enter the kingdom of God before you do. Also, it's helpful for us to remember the namesake of the, of the gospel that we're reading is the book of Matthew. And traditionally, the author of Matthew is Matthew the tax collector. I mean, the dude who wrote the book where Jesus says, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector, is one of those. Or was. Right? So, so we don't get to just be like, they're off the list. That's, that's bad news for us. But it's also good news for us because that's not what God does with us. Amen. And so given this pattern from Jesus, I find it very difficult to interpret Jesus' solution of treating people as tax collectors or or pagans, that means non-believers, meaning to banish them from any contact. Now, if they keep exhibiting sinful behavior, there was something my dad used to say, maybe this will provide you solace. He would say, well, at least they're consistent. <laughs> I don't like some things that can be counted on in life. So at least they're consistent. And so I think to treat someone as a pagan or a tax collector, this is something Mitch told me. He said, 
we decrease expectations and increase grace. Now, y'all know I try to save the Star Wars quotes for when I can make them really count. (laughs) And Woody Harrelson's character, Tobias Beckett, says in 2018's Han Solo, trust no one, assume everyone will betray you, and you'll never be disappointed. Now, I don't actually recommend going through life this way. I think that would be kind of sad. But if we lower our expectations from people who have shown a consistent pattern of behavior, we might one day be pleasantly surprised. So we lower our expectations and just quit letting them suck the life out of you. Now, at the same time, simultaneously, we are increasing grace. For me, part of treating someone as a pagan or a tax collector means not holding people to a Christ-like standard if that isn't something they profess in the first place. Why, why, why would you make that the standard when that's not what they've signed up for? Now, that doesn't mean we give up on them because Jesus clearly didn't. I do think, ultimately, the way to love a relational vampire means to leave the door open. So don't treat a vampire like a psychic. Don't face a vampire alone and leave the door open. Here's what I mean. There's another place in scripture where Jesus tells one of the greatest stories in human history about a father and a son, and two sons. And the son wants his inheritance early, which basically says to the father, getting my money is more important to me than you being alive. So can I just go ahead and get that now? And the father goes with it. He gives his son his inheritance early and he runs off and the Bible tells that he spends it on wild living. The son hits rock bottom and in this low point remembers how good his father is and he decides to head back home. So this is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, Luke 15, 20. So he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Now, if he saw his son from a long way off, what did that tell us? He was watching. He was looking. He hadn't given up on him. The father had left the door open. Now, old scary stories and legends of vampires say that vampires can't come into a house unless they're invited. That's right. So leaving the door open doesn't mean you got to invite them in if the sinful behavior remains. Leaving the door open means we still offer unconditional love. And what I mean by that is can you get to the place where even though this person has hurt you, even though you have several excellent reasons to want to say three strikes, nine strikes, 12 strikes, despite all that, unconditional love means can you get to the place where you still hope the best for them? That's not an easy thing to do sometimes, friends. Don't hear, don't hear me saying, well, this is what I mean. Come on. It should take about 10 minutes. I don't think that's the case. But leaving the door open means that one day they might repent and we could begin the road to reconciliation. Again, a lot of the, this, these sayings of Jesus, pretty clear to understand, hard to do. We're called to love unconditionally. Jesus said, freely you have received, freely give. I think we got that up on the screen. Freely you have received, freely give. 
See, a much less fun sermon to give and to hear would be how we are the vampires for other people. We'll do that next Halloween. (laughs) But we can offer love and grace unconditionally because that doesn't depend on another person's behavior. Getting to the point where we can wish people well and hope the best for them, even when they've sinned against us, that's Christian maturity. Because we worship a God who at the, at the pinnacle of humiliation and, and uh, mis, misappropriated justice, at the, at the pinnacle of unjust execution, said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's who we've signed up to follow. And so we're gonna have to allow Jesus to change us to follow after him in this way. And in that way, we can offer love unconditionally, regardless of another person's behavior. But that doesn't mean we have to let a vampire in. We don't have to give an invitation because love is unconditional. We can wish that person well and truly hope the best for them and it's progress if you even want to do that someday, even if you don't actually feel that way, by the way. Love is unconditional, but relationships are mutual. Without true repentance, there can be no reconciliation. I don't think you can reconcile with someone who doesn't think they did anything wrong. Because they're basically saying, I'd do it again. And so you're like, I gotcha, at least you're consistent. (laughs) You can love someone without maintaining the former relationships that you had. But friends, before we get to that point, please don't skip the hard steps of addressing it directly, of bringing alongside others, and pursuing reconciliation according to the faith we profess as a community. Now after that, we lower expectations, we increase grace, and we leave the door open. May we deal with other sins against us as graciously as God deals with ours. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.